You're listening to Across the Table, a healthcare private equity podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods. Across the Table brings you inside the conversation with the specialists and professionals of the healthcare private equity industry. This is the McGuire Woods Across the Table podcast, a podcast focused on healthcare private equity. This is our fourth episode in the series, and the topic today is reopening a healthcare business post-COVID or maybe during the ongoing uh, saga that is COVID. Today, I'm joined by Amber Walsh and Scott Becker. Amber is the chair of the McGuire Woods Healthcare Group. Scott Becker is a partner with the group and the publisher of Becker's Healthcare. I'm Holly Buckley, and I am a partner with McGuire Woods and also the co-chair of the McGuire Woods Healthcare and Life Sciences Industry Team. Last week, Amber, Scott, and I had a discussion around reopening a healthcare business, what we're seeing, some trends, and we're going to play that podcast for you here shortly. And then after the podcast, we're going to take live questions from the audience. If you have a question you would like to submit, you have a couple of options for doing so. If you're logged in through our podcast platform, you can either hit the little kind of speech bubble by my name or Amber's name, and you can type a question to us privately that way. You're also welcome to email Scott, Amber, or I. I'm available at hbuckley at mcguirewoods.com, H-B-U-C-K-L-E-Y at mcguirewoods.com. Scott is sbecker, S-B-E-C-K-E-R at mcguirewoods.com. And Amber is a Walsh, A-W-A-L-S-H at mcguirewoods.com. And we'll do our best to get to your questions after the pre-recorded podcast episode. So with that, we're going to get started. You're going to hear Amber talking about the eight or nine things to think about in reopening a healthcare business. And we look forward to hearing your questions during the presentation and responding afterwards. Thank you, Liza. I will start really with what I would consider the most hard and fast rule that healthcare providers should consider, whereas there are several different softer considerations that are more of a balancing act, there really is one hard and fast rule that healthcare providers really need to consider first and foremost. And that is the extent to which your state, and in some rare cases, your counties and municipalities have prohibitions on elective procedures. So just to give a little flavor of where we sit right now, as of this recording, There were only two states, North Dakota and Wyoming, who never put in place a stay-at-home order or an elective procedure ban. There were nine more states that never put in an elective procedure ban while they had a stay-at-home ban. So that's a total of 11 states that really had pretty good degree of flexibility throughout the entire pandemic for elective procedures. Of the other 39 states, almost every single one has since softened. But of course, this is where it's really important for healthcare providers to understand what's going on in their own state, county, municipality. The softening has really varied. So for example, there are a few states like Arizona who require healthcare providers to get Department of Health approval before doing a wide array of procedures. Other states like New York, very hard hit state, quite obviously, they are loosening up on a county by county basis. So that's really the first really significant consideration for a healthcare provider on whether or not to open or the extent to expand services. 
And Amber, are there some softer factors that should be looked at as well, other than just kind of the the black letter law? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll tell you the considerations that we've been working through with healthcare providers, and then I'm sure Scott and you may have some additional ones to consider. But I'll start with a list of eight. The first would be the extent to which the particular provider feels like their own supply and their own local situation relative to COVID would put a strain on PPE supply. So for some providers, they have to still amass PPE just to reopen, and that may put a great strain on local PPE resources. The second of the soft factors would be very similar, which is the extent to which the provider's reopening would put a strain on local clinical personnel. So for example, throughout the pandemic, Some providers allowed their clinical staff to flex while that provider was closed. For example, surgery centers that have dedicated anesthesia staff in many parts of the country were very comfortable to happily let that anesthesia staff serve the local hospitals during the pandemic. Once the surgery center reopened, that is another consideration is what that does to the availability of the clinical staff in that area. A third of the softer considerations would be the extent to which the provider is serving a vulnerable patient population, whether or not your particular patient population is in a high-risk category, several comorbidities. For example, many people would say that skilled nursing facilities should be the last or one of the last provider types to reopen. Again, not a hard and fast rule, but an additional consideration. A fourth consideration for many providers is the extent to which the healthcare provider received any form of government relief that is premised on staying in business and serving patient populations. PPP loans, some other local relief opportunities for providers were premised on the understanding that the provider was going to get back in business and have active staff serving patients. So that's another consideration for some providers. A fifth of these thoughts would be whether or not the provider feels capable of doing the things that are necessary to safely reopen. And we'll probably talk about that in a little bit as the conversation unfolds, but things like the ability to triage patients in a different way the ability to do contactless patient intake, things like that. Not every healthcare provider, certainly not smaller practices, are going to feel equipped with the resources to do that effectively. Similarly, another one of the soft considerations is the extent to which the building that the healthcare provider is in would comfortably allow reopening. There are some providers who are in a multi-tenant building on the 40th floor of the building, which requires patients to get in an elevator and spend a lot of time with a variety of other tenant users in an elevator. And that is uncomfortable for some providers to consider. And then the last couple of things that I will list off and then see if Scott has some additional are, of course, what's going on in the local geography. And 
there have been a few very uh, strong joint statements from some trade associations about what they expect at least hospitals to be doing when they consider reopening more fully. So, for example, for hospitals, the American College of Surgeons, the AHA, the ASA, which is the Trade Association for Anesthesiologists, and the Association of Perioperative Nurses have a joint statement that they do not believe it is wise for a hospital to reopen for elective procedures until there has been a sustained reduction in new COVID cases of at least 14 days. That is a statement of consideration, but it's gotten a lot of attention. And of course, that's just for hospitals. But the local climate on COVID cases, of course, is very important. And then the last is for that individual healthcare provider specialties, own trade association, and other industry best practices. There's a lot of industries, for example, gynecologists with ACOG and some other organizations that have released some standards of care that are modified from the normal industry standards of care. And a lot of those can help in this decision on reopening. So that's a host of several soft considerations. But what's clear is that this is not a one-size-fits-all answer. Even the exact same provider type in the exact same city may quite reasonably make a very different choice based on a variety of different factors. And Scott, I'm sure you have several additional considerations that you've been working through with healthcare providers. Sure, no, and I think you've hit a, a really good list of what people are thinking about. I'll come back to the first point and I'll just go through four or five points quickly. The first point is, this has unfolded very differently throughout the country. So we will talk to some practices in areas that have not been that hard hit by COVID-19 for already up to 90% of their prior case volumes, they've really ramped back up to sort of the pre-March numbers very, very quickly. The flip side is we're talking to plenty of places in the country that are still just opening back up for elective surgery and closer to 25, 30% and trying to ramp back up. There are a number of things that drive decisions as to who will come in. And a couple of this goes to age and vulnerability of your population and your patients. The more vulnerable and older patient population that you're serving, the slower they will be coming back right now. It also will depend a lot, of course, on how badly the surgery or whatever the procedure is, is needed. Precautions, as Amber said, more and more point of care testing. We talked to one hospital in South Carolina where they're literally doing tests. They get them back results in 45 minutes. So they no longer have to use so much PPE. They're still using a lot of PPE, but they're not quite as, they don't have to treat every single patient as a COVID patient. But where people are, are sort of bringing people back, testing, PPE, masks, disinfectant, time and distance between patients, distance in the waiting rooms, disinfecting constantly, slower turnover rooms. So we'll see slower throughput. A lot of it comes back to three or four other things that we'll talk a lot about staff protections, how comfortable and confident is the staff that they are protected, patient confidence, how comfortable and confident is the patient population that they can get back safely. And then there are things like understanding what do infection rates and death rates look like in the community that you're in, sort of broader factors that play into confidence and so forth. And then another issue, which is less precaution, but another thing that people are starting to deal with, 20 million people unemployed, you do have this 
sensitivity to, can patients afford to take the time for their procedures? Are they on Medicaid? Are they in Medicare? What's their payer? Has their insurance yet changed? Maybe not yet, but there are lots of considerations of can they take the time off? Are they financially confident enough to have the procedure done? And how badly does they need the procedure? How we, with some of that laundry list of additional thought and some of that being repetitive with what Amber said, let me turn it back to you. Great. Thank you. So, Scott, you talked to some of the considerations for once things are reopening and the confidence issues with patients and staff. Maybe you could talk for a minute about how providers could think about helping build patient confidence in coming back for both office-based visits and procedures. What are some of the things that providers can do to set patients' minds at ease and make sure they don't have a higher-than-usual cancellation rate? Yeah, no, I think it's a great point, and I think it's, a, it's certainly a work in process. You see it in the providers that you're starting to go to yourself in terms of less people, if any people, in the waiting room. More of the kind of thing where you're not even going to the waiting room, you're waiting outside until you're called into the office. Everybody in masks, everybody in PPE, those kinds of things. More and more testing. I mean, some of the systems from a few months ago are so much different in a position to do significant testing today than they were some time ago. So people testing more and more of their employees, testing more and more patients, and more things to get a sense that everybody is safe as they come in. There's just a number of things like that. There are certainly more and more lists being published, but you see people now publicizing, almost marketing their COVID safetyness and trying to make it a clear point to be confident coming here. We're disinfecting all the time. We're doing contactless entry. We're doing more and more pre-screening. We're not bringing you in unless you absolutely have to come in. So just a whole number of steps to give people confidence that when they come to the hospital, they come to the surgery center, they come to the breakfast office, they're coming to a safe place, to as safe a place as possible. So to the point of only bringing people in who need to come in, do you anticipate that the trend we've seen where a lot of providers have started using telemedicine as a result of both kind of necessity as well as the relaxing of some of the rules, do you think that's going to stay throughout COVID and beyond, or what do you see there? I think it was something that was long needed and obviously government and payers concerned about reimbursing telehealth fully prior to this and having it just increase the amount of budget spent on healthcare. So there was concerns about it in almost a perverse way from payers and from the government. Now, it had already become a huge thing in many specialties 10, 15, 20 years ago, like radiology and some other things, and it become more and more used in rural areas. Now, so much of it has become a natural that I think it will continue and hopefully CMS will allow it to continue from the Medicare side and the same thing with payers. I just think from a physician standpoint, from a patient standpoint, if it could be done via telehealth, it just makes life a million times more convenient than it was before. So I'm hoping that it continues in large scale for a long time. And what's interesting too, just to elaborate a bit on the telehealth, it really is kind of its inflection point, right? This is the opportunity right now to really pick up and have providers use it in a whole new way because even those specialties, like Scott had mentioned, that were far out ahead of the curve in using telehealth, for a lot of those, they were really using their technology for provider-to-provider -provider interaction and much, much less so 
for provider to patient interaction. So this is really an opportunity to really, you know, bring providers on board and kind of have this push on reimbursement, even for those specialties that were already using the technology. I couldn't agree more. So shifting gears from patients to staff, some providers as they're reopening are running into issues where staff may not feel ready to come back to work, either because they have obligations at home with child or other dependent care and there's not resources available to or resources that are comfortable to take care of those dependents or because they're concerned about safety at work. Some may have health conditions that make them more concerned from a COVID perspective. Can you maybe speak to how providers could think about addressing some of those challenges? Howie, thank you. I think the question on staff boils down to three or four different issues. First of all, making staff as comfortable as possible that you're providing as safe an environment as possible. So this means similar types of things that you're doing for patients. It means everybody's got PPE and you're abundant on PPE. I've heard about some systems being great about making sure every staff member has PPE. I've heard other systems telling their staff, you've got to bring your own PPE, just depending on the different environment they're in. And obviously the first example is the right one. The second one's the wrong one. The next thing is constant disinfecting, social distancing. Staff doesn't need to be around more staff than they need to be. They also don't need to be around more patients than they need to be. So in a lot of back office functions, people will continue to work remote as long as they can. If you're front patient facing, even if you're registration, more and more of the registrations could be streamlined and online. You're not going to have banks of registration people. You're going to have people a few, several feet apart to give them a little bit more distance, a little bit more of that. Everything you could do to sort of reduce the amount of hand-to-hand close contact with other people, and the more that you could do to provide PPE, the more that you could do to provide social distancing and to disinfect, all those kinds of things are going to weigh into ultimately a large level of comfort. And I think the real proof over time will be is how many people are getting sick, how many people are getting really sick. If you start to have environments where no matter all the precautions you're taking, a lot of your staff are getting sick and having bad outcomes, then it's going to be very hard to get staff comfortable to come back. If in contrast, you go through periods of time and very few people are sick, or if they are sick, they're not very sick, then sooner or later, staff is going to gain confidence to come back and come back fully and be okay. I think one of the more challenging issues with this, and it will play into so much of the age discrimination issues we've had in our country over the last several decades is, how do you deal with your more vulnerable staff? How do you deal with your older staff, which is typically your more vulnerable staff for this? How do you deal with that without running afoul of all kinds of age discrimination rules and so forth? Because the reality is, if you're running an office that has lots of traffic, even if you want your great employees that are older coming back, you're going to be very concerned about it because you don't want older employees coming back and getting sick. So you're going to have this very challenging situation from an age discrimination perspective of keeping jobs for your elderly employees that are more vulnerable and at the same time having the jobs you need for them, particularly if their jobs aren't suited for remote work. And I think this will be a great evolving challenge at least for the next couple of years until we really figure this out more fully. I think that's a great point, Scott, and I think certainly in terms of balancing kind of business need and risk is going to be a a big challenge in terms of kind of doing the right thing while also trying to operate a business. And I think anytime you've got protected classes and you're having to make decisions around that, it's worth proceeding with caution and 
and checking in with Labor and Employment Council to make sure you don't make footfalls. That's so, exactly uh, right. I think there's right. a lot of conference issues for everyday employees and employees that aren't particularly right. in vulnerable populations, but then for those that are older and in more vulnerable populations, very challenging. Scott, when do you think we're going to be able to see healthcare businesses back to normal, or is there not going to be a new normal? Is there going to be some kind of modified normal that's going to last into the foreseeable future? I think a lot of it depends on what people see as they get back into the workplace and see what happens. Over the long term, I expect things will get back to normal and very close to what normal was prior to COVID-19. It will depend a lot. If we see you know, horrendous waves of this and you start to know people and see people and more and more people, employees, colleagues, friends, neighbors that die from this, then we won't get back to new normal for a very long time. If in contrast, more and more people get back to work and they're able to get back to work safely, whether through a little bit less employees on site, a little bit more distancing, all these other kinds of things, over time we'll get back to much closer to a new normal. And it just depends a little bit on what people's real experience is as we get back this fall, as we get back this winter. Then it comes to the issue of vaccines. The more and more you learn about the vaccines, there's already about 12 of them in human trials. There's about 100 drugs under development. The greater sense you get that like they develop a new flu vaccine every single year, they're likely to be able to develop a COVID-19 vaccine pretty quickly. And the vaccine like the flu vaccine won't work for everybody but if it works for 40 to 50% of the people or more, then we are likely to cut down spread a great deal. So as these things start to happen, as people take these new steps, as we start to have vaccines online, as other things happen, and the real wild card is what people's real experience is. I mean, everybody reads on the media every day, whether you're reading right or left-wing media, whatever you see happening. But when people start to go back to work and they either start to see their colleagues getting very sick or not, that will long-term lead to whether we get back to new normal and how quickly we do so or not. I think that all makes a lot of sense. As a final topic, let's maybe share some thoughts about what we're seeing across some different health specialties. The differences between specialties, especially different specialties that are still elective procedure-focused specialties, or are we seeing much the same across the whole industry? Well, I think there's some very, very big differences. I mean, you have this very interesting difference between high-volume procedures and low-volume procedures. So if you're a spine surgeon that does six to eight procedures a day when you're busy or whatever the number of procedures is, that's an easier social distancing type of situation to manage in a lot of ways than it is if you're a gastroenterologist doing 30 colonoscopies a day, especially as you have these new protocols for turning over rooms and more time in turning over rooms, it, there are some of these things that are going to be built in, make it easier to ramp back up for lower volume procedures than high volume procedures, at least for a period of time. We're seeing some of that. We're also seeing different populations, you know, are more vulnerable than others. So if you're doing cataract surgery, the good news is it's mostly all Medicare paid. It's high volume. That's sort of the good news. It's pretty recession resistant or pretty recession proof. The bad news is you're dealing almost entirely with a pretty vulnerable population that's going to be a little bit less confident to come back as quickly as they otherwise would. And so you've got that challenge. You have other practices like dentistry, where there's a lot of very close contact for a serious period of time, and there's some concern about moving that along at a high volume. 
the flip side is every practice faces real financial stress to get back to work. So even though there's been so much negative talk about how hard it's going to be to get back in dentistry, you see the dentist offices filling up very quickly. So I think there will be very real differences from specialty to specialty, depending on higher low volume, the amount of close contact, the amount of the ability to provide protection through PPE, social distancing, and otherwise. I think the days, at least for right now, when you used to go to pick a doctor's office and it was full, completely full in the waiting room, that's going to look and feel different for a period of time. The ultimate outcome economically for the practices might very well depend on whether they can do the throughput they used to do, and it's going to be harder to do it with precautions in the high-volume specialties and the low-volume specialties. I think one thing that we've seen to that point, Scott, is certainly businesses opening for longer hours and opening on weekend days so that they can spread people across the schedule much better. But ultimately, whether or not that can bridge the gap is still to be seen. I mean, 100%, 100%. And it depends, too. Like, some places are expecting a huge amount of pent-up demand, and they're finding it coming back a little bit slower than expected. Other places are expecting a lot of pent-up demand, and they're finding it's exactly as they expected, that they're quite busy and getting going very quick again and might need the expanded hours. I think, you know, and it plays into a lot of these issues of time and distance, whether staff's ready to come back fully and how they're ready to come back, and the vulnerability of their populations. But I think your point is well taken on pent-up demand to the extent that they could do it and space out a little bit more through Saturdays and weekends, terrific. And we're finding right now, people are getting used to, at least for the period of time, until there's vaccines, until people really understand this better, you know, they're getting used to sort of a new normal and how they turn rooms over, how they manage patient flow and so forth. So it'll take a little bit of time for people to really figure out this new normal. And one more factor I'll just throw in there with this balancing act, it's such a balancing act, is the extent to which a particular provider type is dependent on these low-volume but high-cost procedures because there's a patient out-of-pocket component here. And particularly for the ubiquitous high-deductible plans, when you start to move towards the end of the year and patients who have not used their deductibles and are facing a much greater out-of-pocket cost for doing their ACLs and their meniscus repairs, they may be choosing not to permanently eliminate the recommended surgery, but to push it off farther and farther based on what's going on with their own deductible and plan. And that's just you know, one more element that factors in here. And that's a great point. This is certainly a time of wait and see. And you hit that theme over and over, Scott, and that's right on, that healthcare providers are doing the best they can to figure out exactly what makes sense for right now, but so much of this will be evolving. And look forward to continuing to track these developments. Great. And that concludes our pre-recorded podcast. We now move into our live Q&A. As a reminder, you can email any of us, hbuckley, a. Walsh, sbecker, mcguirewoods.com, or send a message through the podcast platform. We're going to jump in with the first couple of questions here. The first one is, and I think, Amber, this may be a good one for you, given some of the work you've done in this area, is to provide an update on the current state of stay-at-home and elective procedure orders. Sure, I'm happy to address that. 
So as of last week when we recorded, um, we were in a very rapid pace of eliminating or softening both types of restrictions. And I think I had mentioned on the recording that as of a week ago, almost every one of the 39 states that had some form of elective procedure mandate had softened or eliminated. And we have seen the last of the states fall. So Michigan was actually the last holdout on softening or eliminating their elective procedure restrictions. And that happened this past Friday, so less than a week ago. So at this point, of course, you know, CMS had previously softened their original guidance. Everything has softened. Some states, though, still do remain in softening state. So not elimination of the rules, but it is now easier. It is permitted to do elective procedures, but there are certain hoops that you must jump through. And that actually toggles kind of interestingly to an additional consideration that may be relevant for some providers who are on the fence about how, when, to reopen, and that's another way that the states vary quite a bit, and that is there are a whole host of states who have implemented immunity from liability for COVID contraction, in some cases, right into their elective procedure orders. So, for example, in Illinois, Governor Pritzker had implemented into the elective procedure softening this immunity for providers so long as they were following IDPH recommendations. So that's another point for consideration for providers who are considering whether it makes sense within their state. Great. Next, uh, Scott, I'm going to send this question to you. What are you hearing throughout the country on how different providers are ramping back up? Sure. And Holly, that's a great question. Thank you. I think what's fascinating about the COVID-19 situation is, depending on what area of the country you're in, you've seen this and felt it very differently. So if you're in New York City or San Francisco, you have one perspective that this is a very dangerous situation, a very dangerous time. The country's not overreacted. If anything, it's underreacted. If you're in places like Texas, Florida, Arizona, there's much more the sense of, you know, when can we get back to business? We're already back to business pretty well. And for all the fear and discussion, we've not seen that much of the COVID-19 and certainly not seen very much of bad outcomes from it. So, so much of this depends on where you're at in terms of your perspective on ramp up. We talked to some practices that are already back to 80, 90% ramped up, if not more. But even those practices do have concern that they had pent up demand that Pentavion is being worked through, but now they've been really not doing as much in office the last several months, last two months, so that their backlog is not as high once they get through that pent up demand. But again, it varies very much from geography to geography and how much the area that you're in felt the surge of COVID as to how you're ramping back up and what the patient and the atmosphere and the employee fear is. Holly, let me turn it back to you. Great. Yeah, and actually, actually, don't um, think we have any other questions. Yeah, and seeing no more questions, I want to just thank everyone for joining us. This is a bit of an experiment for us doing this. 
in this format of playing the recorded podcast. So appreciate everyone joining, offering some live questions so we can do a bit of an update. And before we sign off, I'll just remind everyone that this is an episode in our podcast series Across the Table. This is the fourth episode, and we have several others that are in the works in addition to the other thought leadership and formats that we do, one of which, and this will be the the sole one that I mentioned here, we have an upcoming dental service organization Q&A on June 10th, and it's webinar format. It's at 2 Central. So for this, if you're interested and haven't received this particular invitation or you're curious about any other guidance on reopening procedures or other COVID-related matters, we are happy to answer your questions and, and wish everyone the best of luck in going through this experience. Thank you. We appreciate you joining us on this episode of Across the Table. To learn more about today's discussion or to contact us, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.